I know you're probably thinking I should get back to my Christmas adventures and the conversations and ideas that bubbled over over the holiday season. But I've got a particularly pressing issue right now. This Saturday, I've been invited to assist with my church's mission statement drafting process. Combined with this, I just finished a book by Clement Price called The Fire and the Staff, which I found just absolutely wonderful in its, its analysis of Lutheran theology and its expression of the problems that we are running into as Lutherans in a, an American context, in particular in an American context, and some of the special challenges we have. So I'm going to tie these two ideas together, and within the, the review I'm about to give of the fire and the staff, I will be tying in ideas as best I can about the mission statement that I hope our church is able to come to um, at the end of it and see, see what kind of ideas pop out, uh, what pitfalls I, I foresee, and what uh, I hope ends up coming out of this. And, and there's different ideas I have about the book. The book is divided into several sections which are talking particularly about doctrine and practice. Now, the, the fire is doctrine in the, in the analogy, right? The fire of the shepherd is the doctrine. It is what keeps the thing alive. It is, it is the source of light. It is the source of heat. And the staff is the practice. It is what guides the sheep. It is what curbs the sheep. It is what brings the sheep out when they are lost. The first chapter, called Light the Fire, speaks of how the doctrine must be the metric by which we judge the church. That the call of the church is not to grow in numbers, but to have the right teaching and administer the sacraments. To, to teach and administer the sacraments. That is the call of the church. It is not to make it so that all people have an opportunity to hear now, that is part of the, the call of the individual Christian. But the specific commission we have is to preach, teach, and administer the sacraments. And those must be the core. And why is that? The second chapter, the heat of the fire. What is it that lies within this wondrous doctrine? It is the gospel. It is the wonderful, saving word of Christ, declaring us not guilty by faith alone, not by seeing, but by hearing the word of the shepherd, we are drawn to the warmth of the fire that he has for us. In the third chapter, the fire spreads. The word has power. In the third chapter, the fire spreads. That is, we, we know that the spirit is efficacious, that when God's word is preached, it does work. It does work to create faith in our hearts. That word has power, whether by itself when spoken or when tied up with a physical thing, the sacraments. The word does not return void. This is contrasted with Calvinists 
who would claim that, well, we really, really don't know, and maybe it is, maybe. No, we, are, we can boldly com- confess that the word has power, that, that the fire spreads, that, that when we preach the word, hearts are turned by that word to him. In the fourth chapter, the fire and the staff, Price speaks of how doctrine and practice are intimately connected. The examples he used for this are, one, infant baptism. Infant baptism is a confession of doctrine. And not allowing a child to be baptized is a confession of doctrine as well. Therefore, if we would hold to the right doctrine, if we would, if we would have our doctrine be pure, as it must be, then we must have the right practice in those ways. Similarly, when there are practices that have bad theological um, attachments, there's another example of, of how doctrine and practice are connected, is um, how the breaking of the bread, the physical breaking of the bread when speaking the words of institution. Uh, how this comes from a Calvinist source saying, oh, look, there's, no, there's nothing in the bread, it's just bread. Well, because of those connections, because that doctrine has a theological underpinning that is false doctrine, we should not do that because of the confession it makes about what we believe. Still other things, uh, for example, uh, with, with Paul's case of uh, circumcision or rule, pietistic rules like uh, things against alcohol or meat or vegetables or what have you, there are certain rules that come into place which are, for example, with circumcision, it was believed that the, that the Christian had to do these things. This is similar to the Calvinist error, and therefore we are obligated, we are obligated as Christians to make a proper confession about the doctrine that we must resist those laws. Because This is similar. Why, why should we baptize infants? Well, we must because those who do not are, are wrong. They're making an improper confession. And, and, and with these particular ones, with matters of pietism, we, we need to make sure that we are resisting the, the laws that are put in place, which are not coming from a proper doctrinal position, which place undue burden on the Christian. In those instances, we are obliged to break those pietistic laws. In the fifth chapter, the Christian's staff, good works are brought into the picture. Price emphasizes that good works are ours to do. They are a good thing. They, they must be done by us. They are done according to our vocation. They are done for our neighbor, for other people outside of us. And they are done whether we want to do them or not because of Christ living in us. The good works done in faith are, are valued. They are good in, in, in Jesus' eyes, in, in God's eyes. But, importantly, God doesn't need them. Our neighbor does. God needs nothing from us. God is here to give to us. We are passively receiving his mercy, and we are giving to others. We are giving to our neighbor because our neighbor needs us. Because God gave us our vocations so that we could serve our neighbors. That is the right and proper focus of good works. And the, the, the things we put in place in the church, the different practices we do, must make that proper testimony that 
God does not need our works. Our neighbor does. However, in the next chapter, the fire is doused. He addresses the issues with the American evangelical approach towards doctrine and practice, particularly their false doctrine of experience and synergism. The idea that American evangelicals have that, that they will find the Spirit in some experience of Him. I mean, this applies to Mormons as well, but, but this belief that through experience, through the things we do or some, some good feeling that we have, that is where we find the Spirit. That is false, and that is, that is not good. It is, it is damaging to the church. It is tied up with this idea that maybe when you first make your, your confession, you, you, you're a Christian, but then you must do other things. You must ascend to the next level of Christianity. You must become a spiritual person. And it's always turned in towards oneself, never out. Never out towards the neighbor, never out towards God outside of you, apart from you, always in towards the experience. And that synergism, that, that idea that I must, by my own will, do something to, for God, do something to, to be saved, right? This is the great, this is the great lie. This is the part of the reason we, we were no longer Catholic because the Catholics had this in their theology, hidden in there. Um, the, the, the idea that we have to do something is the constant refrain of every false religion on earth. And American evangelicals have this in spades, and what do we confess opposed to this? Right, I cannot by my own reason or strength. That is the that is the opposite of synergism, and synergism therefore is dousing the truth, dousing that fire, dousing the the true doctrine. It is making a false confession of the faith, because it insists on being active in the work of conversion. In chapter eight, the staff is bent. Since the theology of American Christianity has already erred, has already strayed, so also the doctrine strays. Because we do not think, as American Christians, right, I'm generalizing here, because American Christianity does not believe in what is true. It doesn't believe that what's in the scripture matters, but that experience matters. Suddenly, the, jo the job of the church becomes not to provide the sacraments and preach the word, but to provide the experience. That those things which come in the way of that experience must be held down, must be prevented, must be stopped. Therefore, closed communion, written confessions, these th infant baptism, right? Th those things which, which challenge the doctrine of the evangelical, those false doctrines, those, those practices must be done away with and new practices instituted in their place to uphold the new false doctrine, right? How can, you, how can we have closed communion if we don't believe that it matters, right? But if we do believe it matters, we must have closed communion. This is, this is what he is referring to in the, the bent staff. Ultimately, this leads to the broken staff. In, in this chapter, he focuses especially on the pastoral office, how we confess that a pastor is called and not to be dismissed out of hand because they have been given a divine call, that they cannot be simply cast aside or they ought not to be because that is not right, because that is not what 
the church is ordained for. That the pastor should not be removed because he's not dynamic, should not be removed because he's making people uh, uncomfortable, should not be removed because he's preaching the truth, but rather we have no right to do that at all because it is godly and it is good to have pastors, to have these men preaching the word according to the divine call that those churches which do not, those churches which do not respect this will ultimately be led down a path which completely disrespects the office of the ministry, which leads them to fall away to false practices, evil practices, such as the ordination of women. And it won't be easy to stick to this, and oftentimes there will be struggles. But when we don't, the staff is broken. When we focus on the people, on the power of the people, rather than the power of God's word, the staff is broken. Next, the staff is lost. Preuss puts out six ways, six practices that lose the staff of the church. First, people try to uh, market the gospel, as though it needs to be pitched to people to respond to their felt needs. Oftentimes, this comes with the changes in the actual practice of the church. For example, manipulative music, popular music for the sake of manipulation, a decrease in the historic legacy of the church, an increased involvement of laity, and the practice of open communion. Next, the altar call which is a completely heretical idea, which leads back to synergism, which is calling back to synergism, making one believe that it is in their will to come to Christ. And and also leading to the third point, measuring of success, measuring and quantifying success. That because of the altar call, we now think of success in the church as getting the most people manipulated into coming forward. And so our Our churches become first-class manipulation workshops where we could just watch and see how best to manipulate the masses. In in, in American evangelicals' case, that is the case. That's what they do. And And they put Christ's word onto that. And so what do we do? Now that we have a bunch of people who've been manipulated into this, how do you keep them? Well, you preach providential care, right? Everything will be fine. God's here to take care of your felt needs, of of what you feel needs to be taken care of. That's what God's there for. He's your magical pixie genie person, right? Moralistic, therapeutic deism all over again. And so then the preaching is uh, exhortational and motivational is the fifth point. And, And then when that fails, as it inevitably does, because hardships arrive, Where do you get the church from? Where do you get new people into your church? You get them from other churches by convincing them that their churches aren't alive. So because the general culture is slowly waking up, eventually waking up to the manipulation that you do, you turn instead to the people already in the church and you convince them that that God serving them is insufficient and that they need more liveliness in their churches. And so you steal the sheep from the, from the good pastors, the good proper pastors, 
and you lead them away with no staff and no fire into the darkness. And yet the fire is kindled, right? We, we, Clement now speaks of the royal priesthood that we are. Not, not priests, but members of a priesthood. That each individual Christian doesn't have some special responsibility, but, but that we together have a common calling that this is a blessing to us, that we are given to talk to others. Not by witnessing. He makes it very clear that the Christian doesn't witness to Christ because we don't see him. We confess. We speak back what we have been told because we listen. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Right? This is, this is our blessing, that we have heard the words and we can confess, um, homo logeo, same say. We can speak back what was spoken to us. That is our role as Christians. It is not to be witnesses. It is to be confessors of the good news. And, and this will be hard for us, especially in a world that, that doesn't want to believe it, especially in an evangelical context that believes truth comes through experience. But that is our calling. And if we give it, if we work on it, right? If we just start doing it, doing it within your vocation, doing it in different places with people you're not comfortable with, you'll find, we'll find, he says, that it will come more naturally. Public speaking is a muscle and it must, it must be exercised. And even though we have many temptations that would keep us silent, it is our calling. As you are going, make disciples of all nations. How? baptizing them and teaching. Open your mouth and declare the good news that you have, you have been given, you have been told. And now the fire is stoked, the final chapter. Oftentimes change will be required within the church, but Luther gives us five principles of change, that it must be required by the gospel, that the word should be the one that affects change, not, not force, right? That, that God's word should be the source of our change. That if something isn't broken, if, there's, if it's not directly contradicting a statement of truth, don't, don't change it, right? Keep the good traditions. Don't let yourself get pushed around. Do not, do not give in to those who would bully you into, into doing something. This calls back to the, the discussion on, on uh, circumcision, right? If there are those who say, well, you have to do it this way, don't give an inch. But if there are those who are weak, if there are those who are still learning, right, give them, give them time and, and yield to them. Paul speaks of, of you know, if, if it injures my brother, I will never eat meat, right? If it is bad for the, the faith of those who are weak, then, then help them. But if they seek to use that weakness to bully you, if they seek to use that weakness, their, their own um, lack of confidence, to create a law that you must then follow, you are required to stand up against them. And, and it is discernment, it is understanding that will guide that. Our church, our church was, was recently characterized in a, in a video uh, by the 10-Minute Bible Hour as, as one where you felt the, the, the man felt like he was worshiping with the church of all time and and I would hope in all places as well right? we, we use words from from Greek and Latin because those were the words of the first Christians 
and well greek was latin is was more of a, a western uh, tradition but it is, is still a, the the language of the church right kyrie eleison christe eleison kyrie eleison why why change what what is good what has been handed down by the church unless unless absolutely necessary because of what the word declares because of what is in the scriptures and the confession you make by the things that you do and that's the that's the book um my my, my thoughts i suppose uh, are somewhat intertwined with that just just you know a couple of those things were, were from 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 my own you know processing of the of the content it is it is a truly fantastic book it's it's quite a read i mean you know 450 pages or so uh and and very very simultaneously dense uh in terms of content but but very easy to understand i mean this isn't war and peace this is a little easier than than that but it's a fantastic book, absolutely fantastic. It gets to the core of so many issues that we see in our churches today. The, the evangelical desire to, to change things, to, to conform with the culture, it's not new. It's what American evangelicals have been doing for the entirety of American history. It's, it's what we walked into when, when we, as, as Lutherans, arrived on the scene. On the whole, when we as confessional, liturgical, historical, theological Christians showed up, we showed up to a, an area that was infected with revivalism, with synergism, with a belief that the word of God was not enough. And as a result, they had to change the, the practice, the way it was taught, the way it was preached. They had to change not only the thing that they thought, thought was was false, not only the, the the doctrine that they thought was responsible for killing off the church, but they also had to change the practice to do it. They also had to to use new new measures, right? New measures to bring people in, to to get the the burning of the spirit into them. This is this is not what we believe. This is not what the scriptures teach. The scriptures. Do not permit us to follow these revivalistic methods, to follow these, these change agents as they seek to enliven the church with a new vision or to, to give a, a true mission, mission statement, you know, mission that it's outside of what is in the word. And this is what worries me about this Saturday. Um, I get to, to help out with my congregations deciding for their mission and vision statement, which is terrible uh, on the on the front of it because the, the words mission and vision have been totally ruined for me by Table Talk Radio and Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, who who made such fun of of the missionalizing people with his character of Mission Vision sixty seven or something, um, who would who would give these these ridiculous ideas on how to grow the church from American evangelical principles. And so that's my idea when I hear the words mission and vision. But the, the, the bigger problem that I have here is that the church isn't driven by our vision. It's not driven by the mission we, we feel. It is driven by the words of Christ. Go, as you are going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching. 
and doing all the things that I've commanded you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. These, these are the things given to us. right? The Lord Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. This, the, the doctrines the, which Luther so clearly puts forth in the small catechism are the things that the church is called to do. And, and that is it. We're not called to seek out uh, new, innovative ways of manipulating people into emotional highs by triggering certain dopamine releases connected with the right chords. On a side note, I, I, I've refused to use the word uh, contemporary worship. It's not contemporary, for one. It's, it's the same old, same old that they've always been doing. So the accurate word that will not fall to the wayside is manipulative because that's what it is. So you have biblical liturgical worship and you have manipulation. Those are your options. I know what I'm going to take. It's marketing. It's basic marketing. They, they, they've used their marketing to try and sound like they're holy, but they're not. We have the truth. We have the truth that, that we are not called to do some, some of those valuable things. We are called to preach and teach and administer the sacraments. And who is called to do that? Not me. I am not called to preach. The pastor is. I am not even you know, necessarily called to, to speak the word in church. I'm called to confess it. Now, I would much prefer if my pastor spoke the readings. I'd much prefer if, if you know, we had multiple pastors who could, you know, together between the two of them, give out the sacraments. In that absence, if the elders assist, okay. That's, that's not an abiblical concept. But this idea that just anybody can walk up into the pulpit or that we should allow the women into the pulpit, I'm sorry. It's not, it's not right. And it is making a confession about what we believe. And if we craft a mission statement, if we craft a mission statement saying this is our vision, this is what we think we are, this is who we are, that's totally, absolutely wrong. If instead we make a confession, if we make a statement of common confession, then perhaps I'm okay with that. Then perhaps I could live with that. If, I, if we come together and we say we are a group of people committed to receiving God's gifts, then, then you're a little closer, right? In this place, God delivers forgiveness of sins and, and raises the dead with life eternal through the washing of baptism and the, and the giving and the feeding of his people with his body and his blood through the, through the sacrament. His people are nourished by the word and they, can, and they go forth as confessors to speak the good news and serve their neighbors in their vocations. That's the mission statement I want. And it'll probably need to be cleaned up a little bit. But, but right off the bat, there it is. That is the mission of the people in the church to come and receive. To, to keep the Sabbath day holy. To keep holy the day of rest, right? The, the day of the Sabbath, when you hear the word, is a day of rest. Because you stop it. You shut up and you listen. You know, what's the old saying? God gave you two ears and one mouth. Use them appropriately. Right? We are not called to, to make our own testimonies about our, our conversion experiences. We're not even called to witness 
to an experience, right? If, if, I, if I were to define myself as a witness, uh, Preuss mentioned this, um, if I were to define myself as a witness, I have to do something that I've experienced. But I'm not a witness. I am a confessor. And I am going to continue to seek to, to better my ability to be a confessor by continuing to hear the words of the church, by listening to the pastor by, who, who preaches the word, listening to God and what God says is true. And then saying, I'm going to say that that is true because I, I, I know that my natural man resists it. It hates it. I don't want that. But that is what God says is right. And I am bound to do that. And, and God be praised that he, he sent his son to, to forgive me of my sins. So I can call upon him in every trouble. Pray, praise, and give thanks. I can thank him for sustaining my life, for sending his son, for forgiving my sins. And I can call, call upon him and ask him to deliver me from evil. I can remember the promises he gave me in my baptism and hear the words of forgiveness which are, he preaches through the words of his called pastors, the men he called to be his shepherds for his flock. And I can receive his gift of his very body and blood for the forgiveness of my sins. Those are passive things. I, I am called to passively receive. The mission of the church is to deliver. The mission of the Christian is to receive and confess. I, I highly recommend The Fire and the Staff. Please read it, partially because it's a good book, partially to make sure that you know that uh, I'm speaking the truth and you can correct me if I'm wrong. I've got several other books that I have lined up, so uh, I'll, I'll see if any of them are worthy of a book review slash get ideas out of my head. Uh, session. Otherwise, hopefully, we'll, uh, we'll get to some more of those ideas that are rolling around in the back of my head, um, including uh, political ideologies, the nature of, of man and society, or just uh, the variety of things to do with health, uh, because, boy, that's a big one. Um, until then, I'll leave you with the words of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession.